Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and a Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. This week, we are joined by Pekka Valioniemi. I think I've got that right. Uh, he is a Finnish postdoctoral researcher in inter- internet, ah, excuse me, interactive technology. Uh, and he is also the creator and curator of Vatnik Soup, which is a running digest of all the Kremlin's agents of influence, fellow travelers, useful idiots, whatever term of art you choose to use. Uh, Pekka is a longtime friend and associate, I suppose, in, in the information space, I guess, about the war in Ukraine. And it's great to have you on, my friend. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And listen, I mean, a lot of people have taken a, an enormous interest in what you've done. Uh, and we've had conversations offline about, you know, your exposés on social media of various actors, some of them incredibly well known. I think you've done Donald Trump, you've done Elon Musk, you've done a host of internationally famous public figures, and then others that are less well known or, shall we say, terminally online water carriers for the Russian government, particularly when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of Vatnik Soup? Uh, what inspired you to kind of go after these people? Was it just about Russia's invasion in February of 2022? Or had you noticed a broader trend in the online space, I suppose, of Russian propaganda and disinformation streams that weren't coming from Moscow, but they were coming from within the West itself? So, yeah, I think it all started uh, about in in 2020 when I was uh, doing research on social media in general and uh, and, uh, social media algorithms and uh, there was a lot of talk how social media platforms kind of uh, promote this um, polarizing views uh, so that we kind of are often shown content that creates a big emotional reaction inside us. So I was I was I was looking into that uh, phenomenon and I wrote a few papers on that. And uh, then uh, after the full scale invasion of Russia in Ukraine started. Uh, I realized that a lot of these pro-Kremlin actors were promoted by the social media platforms again. Uh, and uh, uh, I felt like I was having the same discussions over and over again about the same narratives, uh, basically with the same people. So I started looking like, who are these key figures? 
Uh, and uh, then I, I started doing a little research around them. First, I was doing research around Finnish uh, pro-Kremlin actors and propagandists, but then I quickly moved to more international uh, people who are more, more international. Uh, and then, yeah, it started from there. It, it actually pretty quickly became popular and I thought that this is a good way to actually try and help Ukraine in the information war. So I, I kept on doing doing it. And I mean, you, you're up to 197 Vatniks who you've uh, kind of given potted biographies. In, in many cases, though, you, you have amplified, you have exposed and, and amplified because you have a huge following now, unknown bits of information uh, or biographical details that have, shall we say, incited a backlash or uh, a great deal of anxiety and vituperation from some of your subjects. I know that uh, Kim.com, who is a, is he, he's German and another nationality. Right? Finnish. Is he Finnish? Yes. Finnish, right. So he is this outsized figure in more ways than one, uh, very chummy with Elon Musk and has been very voluble on Twitter since Musk's takeover of the social media platform you know, well over a year ago now, and, you know, very nakedly pro-Russian, yeah? Uh, tell us a little bit about this guy, and then he has threatened to sue you for basically compiling that which is already floating around in the public domain into one tidy little thread of who he is, what he's got up to in his life, and why he is a online menace. What 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 has happened with respect to any litigation or, or threats thereof from kim.com so yeah it, to, to me it seems like kim is one of those people who are uh, do a lot of talking but there's little action actually so um he did a lot of uh, threatening um after i did the little expose on on him but uh i have i haven't heard uh from him ever since and he's actually blocked me on twitter now so we don't really have uh, any dis- any kind of discussions but uh yeah so he actually has been involved in various criminal activities for for a f- maybe two decades now so he's he's uh quite afraid of being extradited to the united states where he might actually go behind bars for the rest of his life i think there was another new event uh, another um so i think two of his crimes that he yeah yeah so he he was involved in sharing copyrighted material and i think it also involved uh pornography and this kind of stuff so like uh organized uh, spreading of copyrighted material uh so he he owned this uh website co- called mega and uh, you could basically share any files uh via the the platform and it was uh, of course breaking all kinds of copyright uh, laws so he's he's basically wanted for that and what what is what is his kind of pro-Russian orientation? I mean, did this start recently over Ukraine or has he always been kind of, you know, looking to Moscow as, as kind of the victim and, instead of being the aggressor? Or is this of a piece with the kind of general trajectory of a lot of these uber-libertarian, crypto-besotted tech bros from Silicon Valley to, you know, Southeast Asia who seem to be, for whatever reason, 
uh, infatuated with the Russian Federation. So I think I, I would my my assessment is that he is more rapid anti-American uh, rather than being uh, pro-Russian because basically anybody who is the enemy of of the United States he he supports. So it's he's he's very he seems quite bitter about the the attention he's gotten from from the American authorities. So I, I think it's more about that rather than actually being a fan of Putin or, or the Kremlin. So it's it's trying to kind of defame the United States and uh, its authorities. Now, I mean, a lot of people on Twitter, myself included, go after the cast of characters that you have devoted this year plus long project to. But your your soups tend to go viral. They tend to do ex- incredibly well. And obviously, since February of 2022, we have seen the rise of a pro-Ukrainian, anti-Russian social media phenomenon. We have NAFO, which we had the, the founders of NAFO on this show several months ago. Uh, there's a great deal of inbuilt sympathy for the Ukrainian cause and a more a, a more of an outspokenness to name and shame actors who certainly appear to be carrying water or pushing the Kremlin talking points, but but your thing has taken on a life of its own. Can you tell us a little bit about the feedback you've received? I mean, I have people in media, I've had heard people in, in U.S. government who have referred to Botnik Soup as a great resource because it manages to do that which a lot of think tanks and research organizations and NGOs are either incapable of doing, uh, not because the, the, the information isn't out there, but because of they're afraid of the threat of litigation. Or certainly in the American context, I mean, because you're singling out individuals and going through a laundry list of their foibles and nefarious activities, the concern in the American context would be that what you're doing is a kind of McCarthyism, right? You're, you're naming and shaming people, not as communists, but as Putinists or as lickspittles of the regime. Yet your thing doesn't seem to have engendered that kind of backlash. Do you think it's because as a Finnish citizen, you have a special dispensation because you live far away in Europe. I mean, a lot of the people you go after are Americans, after all. Um, or do you think that the the kind of the, the ground beneath our feet has shifted dramatically in light of the war in Ukraine, that now it's considered more palatable to start pointing the finger at online actors who are clearly involved in some kind of, whether wittingly or unwittingly, information operation? I mean, the classic example of this is Donbas Jevichka. Uh, who turned out to be not a, a an ethnic Russian from Eastern Ukraine, even though she posed as such and had a podcast where she invited a host of far left, far right actors who were standing for Russia. But she turned out to be just some woman from New Jersey, I think, with a military background in the United States military and was helping to launder the Discord leaks, the Jack Texera intelligence documents that were posted to the internet, um, resulting in his indictment on several criminal counts now. Is there more of an appetite for this kind of work, is what I'm kind of getting at here. Do, do you find that this is something that other people ought to be doing and can do with impunity, whereas before 
it would have been seen as a little bit unseemly? So uh, I think what I've done differently is I also kind of outlined the Russian information operations, uh, this kind of pro propaganda, online propaganda programs that they've been running uh, very actively at, at least since uh, 2013. So ba basically there's this big... Uh, heavily funded network that's been funded for 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 a good decade that's been working like uh without uh, the western societies noticing it so it's been chipping at our our democracies for a, such a long time so uh i feel like it's closely connected to that so and uh another thing most of the time what i do is i just collect information from different locations uh on on the internet and i just make a collection and create kind of create a narrative around that which of course sometimes can be because i also inject my own speculation and opinion on the person there it might seem like it's and it often is biased i don't i don't kind of want to uh deny that but it's 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 still something that all all of this data is usually available for everyone, but uh, I just uh, want to make the connections between different actors and between between different uh, phenomena. So I don't think it it's uh, to in my sense. I feel like what I am doing, I'm just putting together this information package that is easy to digest like a soup and I put it for people to see and for some reason it's been quite popular I don't know why I think part of the success has been because of NAFO uh, so I consider what I do I think it's part of the NAFO network and uh, for example if you if you think of the Donbas Devushka which was uh, it was one of the the articles that really kind of um, made the the whole thing more much more popular. It was a group effort. It wasn't it wasn't my work. It, I was just putting the whole package together. But I was helped by um, several people, and uh, that's been the case uh, in in many other soups too. So I've been for especially when it's uh, in foreign languages, I've I've gotten quite a lot of help with translations and such. Well, and, and, I mean, this has had a, a greater impact than it may seem. So the, the Donbass Jevichka case, which, you know, NAFO was integral in exposing her real identity. The Washington, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal then did a whole piece, an expose on, on who she was. Um, but she was responsible for doctoring some of the intelligence documents, or at least one intelligence document that we know of, that Texera had leaked suggesting in her doctoring that Ukraine had suffered more casualties in the war than Russia had. And the significance of this bit of photoshopping, crude though it may have been, was that Tucker Carlson, on his show, when he still had a show on Fox News, cited that figure, which was completely fraudulent, completely concocted by this random woman. I think, where was she in Ohio at this point? She was from Jersey or whatever. Um, and so this this organic grassroots online countermanding of Russian disinformation has paid dividends in terms of exposing not just the, the provenance of it, but where, how the sausage gets made, where it ends up in mainstream media. Um, so I think, I think we, we, in a way, kind of undersell the role that things like what you're doing can have. Have, have anybody, has anybody in the, in the international journalistic community reached out to you about some of your soups, perhaps because they were going to do a profile on one of these people where they were working on a story that concerned one of these actors. Have you gotten, what kind of feedback can you share with us about 
the work that you've done from vested interests here and there. And uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I've been, I've been in contact with, with many, many journalists, uh, with some, uh, people who work in, in the government, in, in, uh, like politicians, uh, policy makers and so on. So, uh, it's been a kind of a big surprise to me how, like, uh, basically, the whole thing has been something that it's it's very difficult for me to kind of understand because it's uh, I started it in October, so it's been less than a year and uh, things have kind of exploded. But uh, I have to say that I, I've I've become much better at doing what what I what what I'm doing now. So I it's it's become so much the 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 re- so-called reports are much more high quality now. So I, I want to be uh, more uh, accurate with my research. I want to bring out more information that might be relevant. But uh, yes, there is a there's a lot of dialogue going on uh, in the background, of course, uh, which uh, which is, of course, nice because it's, it seems that it had it has made an impact uh, in, 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 so in some societies. So it's, it's nice. Has any government or institution approached you about going to work for them to do what you're doing publicly perhaps in a more private capacity or do they want you to just remain very online and very independent of their efforts uh yes yes they have <laughs> so yeah they have a yeah yeah them, right but that 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 only speaks to the quality of the work and the importance of it i mean it reminds me what you're doing batnik soup of do you remember the lithuanian elves who kind of sprung up in the wake of the first invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So this was a collection of, I mean, they were all professionals, lawyers, engineers, doctors, IT specialists who kind of uh, pooled their, their efforts and resources and anointed themselves the elves. And they, the elves were meant to push back on pro-Russian trolls in the Lithuanian information space. And they were so successful at this, and they became such a little homegrown phenomenon um, that NATO and the Lithuanian Ministry of Defense took an interest, but emphasized, we don't want to co-opt you. We don't want to take this over or try to bring you into our domain because we know that it'll turn to shit the minute it has government involvement. So in other words, it's better to let volunteers, civic-minded individuals do this kind of work than to co-opt them and to make them government agents because then you have to go through the bureaucracy and it all gets diluted, right? You seem to be more of the, you want to be your own man and continue the way you've been doing it without any external intervention. Is that right? Yes, definitely. I, uh, bureaucracy destroys a lot of good things. So, uh, and so for me, it's been very easy to work. Uh, I, I write everything. All, all soups are uh, all English soups have been written by me. So I, I, I work. Oh, I always have the last say what will be published. So I, I write the whole thing from start to finish. It's, it's, it's made the whole thing so much easier to produce because, uh, I don't have to, th- I don't have to think about bureaucracy or any kind of institutions or networks, uh, I just I just write and I just publish so it's been very easy easy in that way but um so yeah it's I I think uh, uh we we already discussed about NAFO I feel like this kind of decentralized network that doesn't have any 
hierarchy or bureaucracy has also been very helpful in spreading the message because I NAFO has been again a large part of of the popularity of of Watnik Soup. So they've uh, NAFO uh, members have helped me immensely in in spreading the message that I that I have. So I'm very thank thankful for them on that. Has anybody apart from Jim.com reached out to you? I mean, he obviously threatened you, but has anybody, one of the subjects of your soups, tried to engage you in good faith to say that you had got them completely wrong or you'd misunderstood what they're talking about? Anybody ever change your mind about what the work that you've done? Just a few. Um, so Scott's on Terry, we've been having some back and forth uh he was he was involved in this Donbas Devushka uh, charity charity uh, uh, charity thing, and uh, we've been discussing about it a little bit, uh, but not really. I think generally people approach the 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 problem by blocking me or just completely ignoring me. So the bigger the account, the 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 higher the chance that they'll just ignore me completely because it's just like. Probably for them, it's just a fly buzzing near your ear and just wait for it to go away kind of thing. Because uh, in social media, people tend to forget very quickly. So uh, it's something that they just wait to go away. Did you, um, I mean, I noticed that you, you got into it a little bit with David Sachs, who's another one of these seemingly, if not pro-Russian, then certainly anti-Ukraine tech bros from Silicon Valley, also one of Elon Musk's good friends, and I think he's on the board of Twitter. Um, and he, he claimed that Votnik was a Ukrainian slur, uh, which it was not. It was invented by a Russian and a Russian who had gone through Nashi, the kind of pro-Kremlin youth training camps, before getting religion and deciding that he didn't like this regime. And um, but anyway, the, the term Vatnik, can you tell us a little bit about this and how it took off within the post-Soviet space to designate essentially people who are very unthinkingly, ideologically pro-Kremlin? So, yeah. For, what, what, what made you decide to co-opt the term? So, yeah, I started, uh, I think initially... Uh, the the whole series it, it didn't really have a name, so I, I was just writing about Finnish Vatniks. Uh, so Vatnik to me is somebody who who uh, either believes uh, uh, who believes and or uh, spreads pro Kremlin propaganda. So somebody who believes their stories or just spreads them or both. So uh, and it's for for me it came from actually from. Uh, Russian anonymous social media platforms where it's basically uh, when when people discuss uh, Russian government and so on so Vatnik refers to a person who kind of believes the Kremlin uh, narratives so that's that's the definition uh, uh, that I've gotten but through so it's a, it's it's again it's a Russian term of abuse directed at the Russian government and its accomplices, which has been co-opted by the Ukrainians and their supporters to describe essentially the same thing. It has, it's nothing to do with Ukrainians using it as an ethnic slur to describe all Russians or any of this nonsense. I know that the Wikipedia page for Votnik has been polluted and altered 
no doubt by botnics themselves to try and turn this into some kind of racial thing, but it has nothing to do with it. No, that. no, it's 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 uh uh at least uh like uh, it's there's always this uh Battle go online battle going on between terminology and uh, the Russians have been aggressive aggressively trying to turn Botnik into this kind of uh, a slur ethnic slur, but it's it's the it, that's not the history of the word. Uh, you alluded earlier to the the idea that there's this sort of network of actors, um, perhaps being financed through, if not direct government Russian government funding, then. Harris state apparatuses, uh, that sort of bespeaks a conspiracy. Would you say that you're trying to portray something more akin to a network or conspiracy, or are you in your, your, your focus just looking at individual actors and how what they say, what they do, either by accident or design, lines up with what the Russian government would like Westerners to be saying or doing with respect to Ukraine or a host of other issues? I mean, it doesn't seem like you can paint a picture here that all these people have, you know, ties to Moscow. It's just they they end up regurgitating the Moscow line, either because they realize they're doing it or maybe they don't. Maybe they just think they're being edgelords or contrarian or, you know, they don't like what the U.S. government is saying. So anything that is opposite that is axiomatically true. Do you see some kind of pattern emerging in, in, in 200 Nearly two hundred suits. Uh, so yeah, of course, there there are individuals who are like not connected to others at all. But uh, I still feel like there are these networks, uh, like bigger bigger information laundering networks uh, that could be exposed. But I I personally don't have the tools for that. But I kind of see a pattern in in some some websites, like uh, for example, the Gray Zone. It seems quite suspicious in in many ways, and uh, Mint Press News, uh, this kind of websites uh, where the funding is completely obscured, so it's hidden. You don't you really don't know how they are funded. They claim to be uh, working through donations, but uh, they are quite big establishments. So it's uh, I'm quite skeptical about that. But of course, then you have people who are, which you refer to as uh, as useful idiots. Who uh, I don't, they're not necessarily idiots. They are just people who have been affected by uh, the Kremlin narrative. So uh, people who tend to believe in conspiracy theories, uh, who are often marginalized in society, so they can they try to find maybe a community online that could uh, kind of provide them with something, some kind of meaning to life, so they take on to this kind of job. Well, I mean, Grey Zone, you know, they platformed Dmitry Polyansky, who's the deputy permanent representative to the UN, saying there was not going to be a war in Ukraine days before there was one. He has invited Aaron Mate of Grey Zone to give, I guess you could call it, a form of evidence that Bashar al-Assad was not responsible for a notorious Syrian chemical weapon attack, which the OPCW has said he absolutely was responsible for, based on all forensic investigation. Their ties to the Russian government are, I mean, they're not even hidden. They're they're out in the open. So the question of whether or not they're receiving money is almost moot. I mean, they, they clearly have a relationship. And the work that they're doing goes toward the Russian narrative on everything from the Mariupol drama theater attack, which they 
sprinkled cold water on and tried to portray as either not having happened or some kind of uh, false flag attack by Azov uh, to, I mean, everything from the kidnapping of children, which the ICC has now indicted Putin for, for being responsible for. So it's not even artful, right? I mean, this is the thing. Some of the people in your soups, you could say, are clever, are a little bit subtle in the way that they they, they promulgate their pro-Russian narratives. But guys like Grey Zone, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's indistinguishable from what RT and Sputnik would be doing, right? Um, and that, in a way, I, I can't tell if that's more dangerous or less so, if it's more caricature or more cartoonish, uh, and, and therefore obvious and transparent to everybody. But, you know, we have, in, certainly in the, in the U.S. foreign policy community and, and the sort of context of what's trending on Twitter, you have people who are working for legitimate institutions, organizations, think tanks, who from the start of this thing were saying, don't arm Ukraine, it's useless, it'll never work, the Ukrainians cannot fend off the great Russian army. Uh, and, you know, it's one thing to get it wrong and then to admit you got it wrong and then to pivot. But some of these guys just don't do that. They continue to insist this war has to have some kind of settlement that results in Ukraine ceding its own sovereign territory to Russia in an imperialist land grab because there's no other alternative. There's no solution to it. So, I mean, where do you draw the line in, in determining who qualifies as a Votnik for your soup? I mean, you know, the, the Kit Clarenbergs of the world who are detained at Heathrow Airport because they clearly are laundering FSB hack and leak operations. That seems a little bit too on the nose. I mean, fine, they qualify easily. But then you get into this more kind of nebulous territory of people who could be useful idiots, but not necessarily in a malign way. They're just so obsessed with their reputation and with their priors on Russia that they cannot allow the scales to fall from their eyes. They still have to insist that the Russian government is what it says it is, right? And that's not necessarily that's not necessarily sinister. That that might just be driven by ego or or arrogance or whatnot. So, yeah, I think we often see this kind of uh, activity in academia uh, with, with scholars who do research on particular topics. And it's it's evident in, in basically any field is that if you have a theory that you've been pushing for, say, 10, 15 years, it's very difficult to kind of just then say, OK, I was wrong. All my previous work, all my prior work is, is pointless. I was wrong here. So they kind of, uh, you have people like, uh, Ukrainian Canadian Ivan Kachanovsky, who's been, uh, doing research on, on the Perkut, or the, or the, uh, Maidan massacre and, uh, and the snipers, Perkut snipers and, and so on. So it's basically his narrative hasn't changed, uh, after he made the, he, I think it was in 2015 when he made the claim that most of the casualties, uh, were caused by the, by the, uh, uh, pro-Maidan, uh, revolutionaries. So, uh, it's kind of, with, in academia, it's very difficult to kind of retract your previous work. Uh, so you just kind of have to go on with what you've said before. And I, I Probably another good example would be Max Abrams, who's who's been pushing uh, quite, uh, uh, I would say, maybe anti-Ukraine line. So in academia, academia, you see these people who have just, I don't know, they don't, they wouldn't have to, but it's basically their work. 
their work that they've been doing for years. So it's very kind of hard to retract from that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the classic example would be a John Mearsheimer, who for years has been suggesting NATO expansion is to blame for all the Russian adventurism and perfidy afflicting Europe and beyond. And to this day, will insist that things are going exactly as he's envisaged, even in spite of all available evidence. Um, but at a certain point, you know, being driven by your own hubris, your own sense of self and, you know, being incapable of admitting that your life's work or years of scholarship can be flushed down the toilet in light of recent events, that does grade into a territory where you become a kind of accomplice to a Russian information operation, right? I mean, if you look at how the KGB through the Cold War and, and then now the Russian security services beyond ply their trade, they look for these sort of fragile personalities. They look for people who are driven by ego or a lack of money or a sense that of resentment that they should be taken more seriously. I mean, in Max Abrams case, you know, this is a guy who could not get on CNN or MSNBC but RT was always willing to host him to talk about how everyone in Syria who wasn't working for the Assad regime or Iran or Russia was a terrorist, right? And that sort of has its own momentum behind it. That drives a sense of, ooh, somebody is, is actually interested in what I have to say. You lean into it. You know, it, 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 you, you become the face grows to fit the mask, as it were. But at a, at a certain point, it's all of a piece, right? Because they, they end up doing, they're not telling the truth. They haven't got their facts right. Whatever kind of Freudian psychoanalysis could explain how they arrived at this point, at the end of the day, they are still becoming witting or I mean, semi-witting accomplices of a Russian government information campaign. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think uh, another good example of, of a group of people is are those so-called independent journalists who Many of them reside in in Moscow. Um, I have a I have a associate who lives lives there, and we we have discussions every now and then. And uh, we have discussed about this. Like m many of these people, they couldn't get any work in in Europe or in the United States, but uh, RT Sputnik were ready and willing to employ them, and and the, the pay isn't bad. Uh, and uh, you get to see the world, you get to see Moscow or St. <laughs> Petersburg. But anyway, you can, it's, uh, yeah, of course they, they try to target people who are willing to be, uh, pro Kremlin propagandists because it's, it's quite cheap and it's quite effective. There's a problem though in, in, I guess, the American moral imagination at the moment, which is so many people came out of the woodwork in 2016 when the first inklings that Donald Trump may have an unhealthy relationship with Russian state actors or those sent by the Russian state, uh, everybody became a self-appointed expert in Russian active measures, disinformation, intelligence operations, and kind of oversold the case to the point that when the Mueller report came out, there was a sense of, of bathos that descended. This isn't what we were promised. We thought, you know, there would be a smoking gun connecting Trump to the Kremlin. And now all of a sudden you begin to see, particularly in digital media spaces, an enormous pushback to this notion that the Russians are doing anything of this kind with respect to anyone, much less the man who became president of the United States, right? 
I mentioned this sort of the smear of McCarthyism, uh, 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 you know, sense that people have become too paranoid and quick triggered to assign or attribute Russian culpability to whatever befalls the Republic. And to a degree, one can appreciate this line of argument because I do think some things were oversold or, or caricatured or needlessly sensationalized. But dot, 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 that does not mean that the Russian security services, the Russian foreign ministry, or Rosotudnicheskva, which is the cultural agency of the Russian foreign ministry, it doesn't mean that those organs are not actually doing this kind of thing, not just in the United States, but all over Europe. And I think as a European, you kind of have more uh, cognizance and more of an inbuilt audience because, I mean, as a Finn, I should say, you know, you guys fought a very memorable war with the Soviet Union uh, in 1939, and that's kind of ingrained in the cultural memory and the national psyche of Finland. You've just joined NATO. You have one overwhelming singular national security threat that we, as the United States, have had many in the last few years, but yours has always really been Russia, right? So do you think that there's kind of a disconnect for you as a European doing this kind of work from what I, as an American, trying to do this kind of work would, would experience, especially in light of recent American electoral events? So, yeah, probably. So if you, if you ask people from, from Finland, from the Baltic states, from Ukraine, probably Georgia, Moldova, like uh, there's probably a lot of this uh, skepticism towards Russia. So, like, once, once uh, Russia kind of opened their markets to the west and the money started flowing a lot of people became uh, involved in russian business and uh, this is something that we we especially in europe we, there was there were quite grim consequences on that so but they used a lot of different uh, like hybrid warfare techniques for this so they they used uh, bribery they they did a lot of bribing they they used uh, fake ngos and uh, they took over medias they established their own own fake news medias to kind of spread the pro kremlin message and it it worked because people weren't aware of that so uh, uh in my opinion, it started uh, around 2007 after or 2008 after Putin had his his famous Munich talk, uh, where he basically threatened the West. But still, they started pushing a lot of money and a lot of uh, infrastructure programs to to Europe. So we kind of got hooked on 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 Russian money and Russian resources. But at the same time, they also did a lot of. Uh, influencing through these NGOs, through these uh, fake news media. So uh, I wouldn't say that we are, we were aware of Russia's strategies. We weren't. We were completely uh, kind of blindsided uh, by them. Uh, and I think the same happened uh, with, the, with the United States after, well, after 2000 around 2014 or and especially during the the 2016 presidential election so i think it's something where they were just much better than than us in the west so i would i i would say that there's a lot of there's always been a lot of skepticism in 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 the bordering countries with russia because we know their history we know what they can do i mean you you look at georgia you look at moldova you look at chechenia uh, you look Ukraine, 
all the, all this stuff like the history is quite telling so it's always uh basically finnish uh military and defense military defense is built around the threat of russia so we have bigger artillery bigger, probably the biggest or second biggest artillery now ukraine has bigger than anyone else in in europe so uh we just didn't see this one part of of uh of the warfare so that we didn't realize the information warfare aspect but you know one of the things that came to light after 2014 2015 was that the Finns are actually quite good at teaching media literacy and skeptical mindedness with respect to online information to children at a very young age right like in kindergarten i think it is in in finland you teach kids don't automatically click like on something just because loads of people including your friends have clicked like on it interrogate the subject matter try to get to the bottom of is this true is this not true in the united states we're still dealing with how do we counteract disinformation and disinformation has itself become a very fraught loaded term because it's been politicized um and obviously the republican party now thinks that the entire thing is a, a bogeyman that doesn't exist when in fact it's just historically documented as being very much uh, a phenomenon. But is it true that, or do you agree that the Finns have had a better handle on going, I mean, starting at a, at, at a generational level, creating this social cohesion or this, this social resiliency um, and imperviousness to Russian disinformation streams, just by dint of, as you say, your geography, where you are on the map, your history of having fought Russia, your history of having built an army and a national security apparatus dedicated to, you know, forestalling Russian threats. Um, I mean, America, it seems to be like, even though we fought the Cold War II and we have this annual defense budget that was largely created to beat back the Soviet Union, we're playing catch up. You know, we, we are the students, not the tutors, particularly to European nations that are that much closer to the Russian border. So yeah, I think in in the case of Finland, we can we can uh, be very grateful to the Finnish broadcasting company that is uh, for, funded by by us uh, as the taxpayers. So basically, a lot of this uh, disinformation, anti disinformation campaigning and uh, education is coming from there. But of course, it's also integrated into into the education system. But I think uh, why the United States is struggling with this kind of thing is you have a very first of all, you don't really have this kind of. Uh, government-funded uh, public radio, public TV, but you do, but it's not really playing a big role in, in the media space. But you have a very polarized media in general. So basically, when you look at the biggest media media enterprises, so you have, I don't know, Fox, uh, CNN, and they are basically just combating each other it's this uh, there's a lot of this uh, what I what people call grievance politics or kind of you you kind of trust bigger on each other fight fight among each other so it's very easy to target this kind of polarized society or polarized media space because there's already a lot of infighting and uh, there's really at the, I I've, I've discussed about this um, 
post-truth uh, politics that's very evident currently in the United States. So you you don't really you don't have to tell the truth. You can you can lie as much as you want, and you will never have to take responsibility for that. I mean, you take Trump who lied over 30,000 times during his presidency so it's over 20 times per day so it's it's just a how do you start kind of entangling this problem i think that's like it's it's such a huge problem right now especially in the u.s politics like there is no you don't have to take responsibility for lying so it's very easy to kind of uh influence this kind of system from the outside in my opinion yeah, and people they enjoy the lie. They get a sense of titillation. I mean, if they don't believe it, they're they're entertained by it, and they're also impressed by the fact that the liar carries on with impunity and seemingly increases his or her popularity. So this is a big problem. It's sort of a postmodern. I mean, post-truth is one way to describe it. Yeah, but it's it's more than that. It's 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 a sort of nihilistic. Um, politics where nothing really matters anymore it's just about am i being is that sort of the amygdala in my brain is it being stimulated at the moment you know and if it isn't i don't care and it doesn't matter if it if it concerns social policy healthcare, war crimes abroad i just want to be i want to feel something yeah yeah and i think it's there's also uh what's quite evident these days is there's this kind of uh, Reagan style, good, good versus evil, us versus them, kind of thinking. Uh, so, but it's inside the society. So it's uh, it's Trump's people versus uh, Biden's people, or this kind of. It's basically uh, everything that is wrong in the society or in the country is the fault of the other party. There is no outside influence coming from other countries. It's always always the president or the the one who's or like so. That's it's a very black and white thinking, as, and as you said, it's very emotional. It's 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 who creates the best emotions for people usually wins, or like who who creates this strong uh, emotional reaction. Well, Pekka, um, it's great to finally have you on the show. Uh, been a long time admirer of the work that you're doing, uh, and I know that you end Vatnik Soup at two hundred, so you've got what three left three to go. To go. Um, but where can we, where can the audience find you have a compendium of all your soups on a website, right? Yes. So vatniksoup.com, you can find everything there. Uh, and I'm also launching a YouTube show called the Soup Central. Uh, I don't know when it, it'll start, but uh, probably quite soon. Uh, it'll be more in-depth analysis of of individuals and uh, phenomenon around the usually like. Pro. Yeah, so you're going multimedia now. You're not ending your project. You're just expanding. It's a different project. Uh, so yeah, uh, let's see how it uh, evolves. Because I would like to also discuss other topics that are not strictly related to uh, Russian information operations. But uh, I, I have a, I have a good feeling. I have a feeling that it's going to be as uh, at least as good as, as the Vatnik soup. Gotcha. Well, I, I hear your daughter in the background, so I think she wants her dad back. I'm going to let her have him. Um, it's great to have you on. Uh, this is You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. My guest this week has been Pekka Valioniemi. Uh, he's a postdoctoral research 
expert in interactive technology and the creator of Vatnik Soup. Pekka, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. This was great.